This is the new Criterion. I'm James Panaro, Executive Editor. From Permanent Things, Russell Kirk's Centenary, a symposium on the conservative thinkers' enduring ideas. This is Roger Kimball introducing the symposium. Versions of this presentation and others appear in the January 2019 issue of The New Criterion. I'm Roger Kimball. Thank you for coming. So here we are at the uh, centenary of Russell Kirk. I'm delighted that we have some direct connections to Russell Kirk. There are at least two, I think three people here who, uh, who knew him personally, studied with him. It was Ken Cribb, Ken, and Jeff Nelson. And uh, so that's nice. Such, such filiations, I think, uh, are not, strictly speaking, adventitious. So we'll be touching on a wide range of Russell Kirk's interests over the course of the day, from his conjurings with Edmund Burke, the central intellectual reverberation of Kirk's work, I think, to his thoughts on that key Aristotelian virtue, prudence, and even his youthful labors in the unfairly deprecated literary genre ghost stories, where Kirk first made his name, and so James Pinero tells me, he enjoyed his biggest commercial success. Who knew? But so he did. Now, the subject of ghost stories prompts me to observe that an unseen hand, perhaps, perhaps the hand of providence, seems to have been directing the logistics of our deliberations. I knew that 2018 was the centenary of Kirk's birth when I started thinking about putting together this conference last spring. I said it at first, that we would hold the conference sometime in the fall, after various deliberations and inspections of the calendar and other obligations, we settled as if, as if by accident on today, October 19th. I had no idea when we booked this room and proffered our invitations to all of you that it happens to be Kirk's birthday. So. There you are. Now, in a, in a charming book about coincidences, Father George Rutler, many of you know him, uh, notes that odious though the superstitious misuse of coincidence is, that perversion is, so he says, only slightly less offensive than the underestimation of the significance <laughs> of some coincidences. So I think that uh, Ian Fleming's Goldfinger was mutatis mutandis uh, onto something similar when he observed that once, once is happenstance, twice is coincidence, the third time is enemy action. <laughs> well, Rusty Reno is going to have something to say about Kirk and the imagination. To me. Kirk has always been one of those figures whose example is an admonition to the ontological, uh, against rather, the, the ontological poverty that we saddle ourselves with in our surrender to the beguiling superficialities of a thoroughly disenchanted secular materialism. If ghosts and other non-quotidian manifestations loom large in Russell Kirk's spiritual geography. It is partly because he was not beholden to the exiguous dogmas 
of a self-declared age of enlightenment whose defining prejudice is, in Hans Gadamer's phrase, a prejudice against prejudice. Indeed, one of Kirk's chief attractions is the amplitude of his worldview. He would not, I think, have quite approved of Walt Whitman, but but there was something, there was a largeness about Kirk and his view of the universe that was Whitmanian, I think, in its insouciance regarding logical niceties, which can seem sterile when counterpoised against the rude pulse of living tradition. Kirk was a thinker who coaxed us to enlarge, not diminish, the existential furniture of our world. Catholic churches in this country these days have lately taken to ending the Mass with a prayer to the Archangel Michael. Protect us in battle, we say. Be our safeguard against the nequitium et insidias diaboli, the wickedness and snares of the devil. Are those just words? All those people across the country saying those things? Airy nothings, gilded with a kind of crust of sentiment or sentimentality? Or are we talking about real things? Hold that thought. In Henry IV, Part One, <clears throat> Sir John Falstaff, a thoroughly modern rogue, asks, what is honor? What is honor? And he concludes, not without a bitter dram of contempt, that honor is but a word. And what, he asks, is in that word, honor. What is that honor? Air. Air. A trim reckoning, he says, a mere scutcheon, nothing. Well, Russell Kirk's life it was a campaign against that species of existential depreciation. For him, honor was a reality, not air, not nothing. And I suspect that his pantheon of realities had plenty of room for angels as well. The philosopher Roger Scruton, who some of you know, once observed that Kirk showed that Conservatism is fundamentally not an economic but a cultural outlook, and that conservatism, quote, would have no future if reduced merely to the philosophy of profit. Put bluntly, Scruton said, conservatism is not about profit, not about profit, but loss. It survives and flourishes because people are in the habit of mourning their losses and resolving to safeguard against them. Bill Buckley, who some of you also knew, is often credited with rescuing conservatism from the political irrelevance and social ostracism of that time. Buckley's force of personality, his languid, if also bright-eyed and energetic demeanor, almost single-handedly injected life into the conservative project at a time when the pieties of a regnant liberalism were nearly ubiquitous. 
and therefore taken for granted. But if Bill Buckley re-energized the political and social fortunes of conservatism, Russell Kirk, I think, was the person most responsible for reinvigorating the intellectual heritage of conservatism in this country. Kirk, who, who died in 1994 at 75, was a lonely voice in the wilderness when, in 1953, he published his magnum opus, The Conservative Mind. Only a few years before, in 1950, the literary critic Lionel Trilling wrote that, quote, in the United States at this time, liberalism is the only dominant, perhaps even the sole intellectual tradition. For it is plain that nowadays there are no conservative or reactionary ideas in general circulation. Today, said Trillin, the conservative impulse and the reactionary impulse do not, with some isolated and some ecclesiastical exceptions, express themselves in ideas, but only in action or in irritable mental gestures which seek to resemble ideas. 1950. Well, in a single stroke, Kirk's book challenged that diagnosis. He had set out to write a kind of elegy commemorating a great but derelict past. But in the event, the conservative mind not only recovered a neglected legacy of conservative ideas, but it also trumpeted a conservative future. The edition I first read back in the 1990s was a seventh revised edition, expanded. Who knows how many printings the book has been through now. From the moment it appeared, the conservative mind was a sensation. I still recall the thrill the book gave me. At last, I thought, I have come home. Describing, quote, an inclination to cherish the permanent things in human existence, Kirk issued a challenge to liberal pieties and provided a sort of tonic for the conservative thinkers and politicians he discussed. John Stuart Mill had once referred to conservatives as the stupid party. Kirk's book helped rescue conservatism from that diagnosis. Headquartered for most of his prolific career at Piety Hill, his family's modest ancestral home in Nicosta, Michigan. Some of you have been there. Kirk wrote some 30 books, 30 books, novels, and those ghost stories I mentioned, along with scholarly works, as well as countless magazine articles and lectures. His influence was enormous. He was, for example, an important part of the founding generation of Bill Buckley's National Review. But Kirk's place in the cultural history of our country is as difficult to categorize as was the man himself. He wrote two memoirs, Confessions of a Bohemian Tory and The Sword of the Imagination, 
memoirs of a half century of literary conflict, which he completed just before his death in 1994. Like Caesar's chronicle of his exploits in Gaul, The Sword of the Imagination is written in the third person, which gives the book a kind of formal, almost stately texture. Nevertheless, it provides a vivid portrait of a life devoted to salvaging traditional, even antique values in a world increasingly ruled by technological imperatives. There are no lost causes, Kirk observed in one of his most quoted apotheums, because there are no gained causes. Our sloth, our lethargy, in the face of the fragile dispensations that we take for granted, these settled realities that we live among, tends to obscure that dialectic of loss and gain. Among those who were likely to be vexed by his meditations, Kirk notes, are enthusiasts for modernity, the global village, the end of history, the gross national product, the emancipation from moral inhibitions, abstract rights without concomitant duties, and what Samuel Johnson called the lust for innovation. It was part of Kirk's charm to enroll modernity and the GNP in his catalog of vices and cast innovation and a fortiori the lust for innovation into his index of suspect attitudes. Kirk was fond of quoting H. Stuart Hughes, the sociologist, who said that conservatism is the negation of ideology. Kirk's own brand of conservatism admitted principles, but not positions. And dogmata, a nice Greek plural word that was one of his favorite epithets. He didn't like those things. Kirk blended a nostalgic romanticism with a Burkean faith in the advantages of tradition and sound prejudice. It was from Kirk, I think, that I first absorbed Burke's idea that prejudice is not, as we have been taught, ad nauseum, synonymous with bigotry, but on the contrary, that a just prejudice, as Burke says, is a good thing because it renders a man's virtue his habit. Kirk was almost Chestertonian in his fondness for paradox. One of my favorite Kirkian observations is that he was a conservative because he was a liberal because he was a liberal. What goes under the banner of liberalism today, of course, has so thoroughly cut itself off from such traditional, animating, liberal imperatives as liberty, freedom, and disinterestedness, that it is easy to regard Kirk's declaration as merely paradoxical. But it was not so much paradoxical as it was admonitory, recalling us to springs of freedom only an embrace of tradition can nourish. Like Burke, Kirk understood 
that an affirmation of the customary, the conventional, is the most reliable safeguard for individuality and fructifying idiosyncrasy. Now, Edmund Burke is a respectable conservative icon, and Kirk did a great deal to reintroduce Burke to an American audience, innocent of his work, as an ambassador from the territory of bygone ideas and sentiments. Kirk can seem like a respectable conservative icon himself. In some ways, he was. But I think we do him a disservice if we insist on making Russell Kirk too respectable. He was a Tory, as he said in that memoir, but he was also a bohemian Tory. He was correct in observing that his was not and I quote, an enlightenment mind, but a gothic mind, medieval in its temper and structure. This feature of Kirk's temperament made for some striking, not to say eccentric, conjunctions. Like other conservatives, Kirk affirmed that freedom and property are closely linked. Well, that's a good thing. But he also declared himself no apologist for an abstract capitalism. He was no doctrinaire disciple of Friedrich Hayek or Milton Friedman and frequently inveighed against, quote, our fetishes of creature comforts and material aggrandizement. Kirk rarely used the word progress without a sarcastic initial capital. The automobile, he wrote, and he always wrote automobile, not car, was a mechanical Jacobin, a, quote, instrument of civic and familial undoing, different from the guillotine, he implied, chiefly because it lacked a sharpened blade. In his view, quote, industrialism was a harder knock to conservatism than the books of the French equalitarians. Although Kirk was a friend and avid supporter of Ronald Reagan, he nevertheless voted for the socialist Norman Thomas in 1944 to reward him, said Kirk, for his anti-imperialist stand before Pearl Harbor. Later, in 1976, he lodged another protest, voting for Eugene McCarthy, if you can believe it. Although he was a fervent patriot, Kirk believed that all wars fought by America, including the Revolutionary War, might have been averted, so he said. I do not think he would have been pleased by the spectacle of a Secretary of Defense whose nickname is Mad Dog. <laughs> so Kirk did not hesitate to enunciate <clears throat> forbidden opinions. Quote, there ought to be inequality, inequality of condition in the world, he wrote, for without inequality there is no class, and without class no manners and no beauty. And then people sink into public and private ugliness. Fortunately, Kirk never ran for office as far as I know. <laughs> Generally, Kirk's boldness was refreshing. Occasionally, I think, 
he trespassed into crankiness. In 1998, for example, he wrote that, quote, not seldom has it seemed as if some eminent neoconservatives mistook Tel Aviv for the capital of the United States. Although Kirk came late to religious belief, he was not received into the Catholic Church until 1964, he always believed that, quote, political problems at bottom are religious and moral problems. The first of his six canons of conservatism was the conviction that there exists a transcendent order or body of natural law which rules society as well as conscience is key. Kirk's life and work was a testament to that conviction about the transcendent order, and I suspect that it may be his most precious legacy, especially in this technology-besotted world. Kirk wielded his sword of the imagination not so much to influence policy, but, as he said, quote, to rouse the political and the moral imagination among the shapers of public opinion. Few will agree with all of Kirk's opinions, but all conservatives must be grateful to him for his recalling us to the values that are as precious as they are besieged. <laughs>